Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Thank you for tuning into this story so far. If you haven't been tuning into Hungry Ghosts of Paradise from the beginning, go back to the start. It is not meant to be listened to um, at random entry points. It's a very linear tale. So I have two new chapters for you. And I'm recording this from a really beautiful house in Crete. And it feels really supportive and kind of like divine timing that I am in as supportive and beautiful a place at this moment when I come to you with these particular chapters. My intention for sharing this story has grown and shifted along the way um, because it emerged as an impulse and something that felt true in me. And something that I've been learning along the way is that creatively telling our stories is a form of healing. And I'm really grateful for the way that people who are tuning into this are telling me that it's supporting their own storytelling or their own soul retrieval process. So I want to thank you really truly from the depth of me for tuning into this because your listenership feels um, restorative for me as well. There's something like I think quite natural about sharing our stories and I've kept this one inside of me for a really long time and I appreciate you. I'll get into it now. A reminder, this story is for adults. Please listen responsibly. At a buffet-style restaurant on the way out of Farmington, Aiden is making his plate. I'm in the booth. Two beautiful women in the booth behind me get my attention. Is that your man? One asks. Yes, I say. He is fine, the other one says. Is he good? She has a suggestive gaze, bites her lip. Best I ever had, I say, laughing at the frankness of her question. But is he handy? Can he change a tire? Yeah, he's handy, I say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, one says. Aiden remains unaware of our conversation, joins me with a full plate. We are on our way to Salt Lake City for supposedly legendary paragliding spots. We stop first in Moab. Since the morning, I've felt like I may have an ear infection. We pick up some ear oil, which I'm not really sure will help. It's nighttime by the time we get to Salt Lake City. We've already been discussing if paragliding will happen or not tomorrow. 
I'm basically a no, given that I want to get home and get my ear treated as soon as possible before a flight to make the past life regression workshop in upstate New York. Like other decisions before this one, Aiden acts like it's a toss-up, a we'll see tomorrow. He won't give me the satisfaction of a we'll go straight home, and I won't put my foot down. It's a stalemate. It is April 16, 2016. Tomorrow morning, on the 17th, around 5 a.m., Mars will station retrograde. Mars is also conjunct Saturn. They are in the sign of Sagittarius. It is early in my career. I'd heard other astrologers issuing warnings about Mars and Saturn together in the sky, the two malefics, up to no good when together. But I don't think of Mars and Saturn as malefic. I seek the highest octave possible. I think to call them malefic is a limitation in consciousness and a human judgment. We check into a motel in Salt Lake City that has a pool and go swimming for the night. The jacuzzi is full of other people, an ex-military special operative type who Aiden chats with, but eventually everyone files out and it's just Aiden and I, floating in the pool, under the cover of this indoor pool, this warm incubator. Aiden puts me on top of his shoulders and we play, and then there's no one to get mad at us for making out. I don't even think we've been in a body of water together before. It teaches my body that I could love the water some layers deeper than I imagined. I feel lucky, included in on perhaps one of the most luxurious experiences known to humanity, a woman in love, timeless in the pool, green light flickering in and out, 50s diner jukebox nostalgia, going steady like it was the biggest accomplishment of my young life. Roses falling from the sky during a parade. And we sleep. In the morning, April 17th, 2016, Aiden wakes up from a dream where an insane version of himself wants to go paragliding, and his higher self, self with a capital S in the dream, warns him not to listen to that guy, that crazy guy. In my mind's eye, it's like a watercolor painting with a red sky and a small black silhouette of a man and a backdrop of trees. Okay, so no paragliding, I say. No paragliding, Eden says. Even though I think I am not concerned about Mars just having stationed retrograde early this morning, Aiden launching up into the sky on this day, while I think I have an ear infection and I need to go home, doesn't sit right with me, so I'm glad he changed his mind. Not too long after, actually, I do want to go. Why? Your dream told you not to. It's just a dream. We're in a paragliding capital and I've wanted to go this whole trip. But I have an ear infection. I need time to see a doctor before catching my flight. I don't want to linger here. It'll just be a couple of hours. I don't want you to go. If you don't want me to go, I won't. It's your car, your trip, your money. With these words alone, I'm fighting back tears. No, I say, it has always been your trip too. Please don't. I don't want to tell you that you can't go. I am scared of controlling him, but not from a pure place. 
I am trying to control him, but with the illusion that I am not controlling, because if I was controlling, he wouldn't want me. It is a deep control operation. At this time in my life, I cannot see past this type of power game. We argue back and forth. Aiden has an intense look in his eyes, like I'm arguing with a junkie, or like I'm staring in the eye of a cat who is hunting, dodgy, chasing. I've never seen Aiden like this. Like all the workouts he's skipped being on this trip and the absence of that type of release is catching up to him with a need for adrenaline, a refusal to leave the city without visiting the sky. It's up to you, he says. It's not up to me, I say. I fear his resentment. I fear being the one who said no to what he wants. He hands me the course of the day, open in his palm, and I won't take it. But you were insane in your dream. You said not to listen to the guy who wants to go paragliding. It was just a dream, he says sharply, and a black light appears over his forehead. I'd never seen one with him before. I backed away from him slightly. We are sitting facing each other on the bed in the motel and my eyes open wide. A deer, drinking from a moonlit stream, stumbles back and looks up in shock, frozen. One time, I'd been trying to convince my dad that something was possible, something that would be in his best interest for his health. He was six, seven years before he died. Sabrina, it's just not possible. Drop it, he said and a black light appeared above him before he turned away from me and toward his desk. I wouldn't have dropped it, but the black light scared me and I left the room. Go then, I say to Aiden, exasperated, my heart pounding. All my efforts to keep Aiden, the times he was away and didn't call me as soon as he said he would and I psychically pull at him to text me back or pray to the angels the way I pleaded for him to come to the funeral, the way I was often careful to only show the desirable parts of myself, all the times I tugged at his energy and had to or else he would just be off with the wind it felt. These moments flashed before my eyes like a film strip clicking through a projector. For some reason, this is the moment I give up the fight to possess or direct Aiden. Go then, I say to Aiden, exasperated, my heart pounding. I drop Aiden off at the paragliding site. There are already paragliders floating close to the clouds. He will call me when he's done. I close my eyes and say a prayer for Aiden's safety, and I see a sea of sparkling lights. I wait in a cafe and write. After a few hours go by, I go into the bathroom and turn off the light so I can see my own lights brighter in the dark. Eden is safe, I say. A light appears. I feel nauseous, though, so I keep saying affirmations, and I keep seeing lights. Aiden texts me that I can pick him up. I arrive, and Aiden is quite inward, slow distracted seeming. A few men are gathered around him. 
One hands him a plastic bag with a few pills inside of it and looks at me, then casts his eyes down and walks away. Is everything okay? I ask. I crashed, Aiden says. I look at him. He's not bleeding. He's alive. None of the men give me any details. They just scatter after seeming concerned and one touching a hand to Aiden's arm. What happened? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, but I have a headache. It's hard to think. Can we not talk about it right now? My heart drops. Okay, I'll drive. Do you need anything? No, he says. Getting into the car, he says, I had told one of those men you saw about our love. He was really inspired by it. Oh, that's sweet. I'm not sure how to talk to him right now, what's allowed or what's desired. It feels touchy. What's in the bag? I ask. Tylenol. Okay. Aiden asks if we can stop at a fast food place. He wants a major high-calorie meal. He thinks it will comfort him. A few minutes onto the road, after having eaten a cheeseburger furtively like he was doing something wrong, Aiden starts to talk. He tells me how all the paragliders were on alert about the dangerous winds today. That he went up and had a successful flight and came down just before the other gliders were called down. But he decided to go back up into the sky again, and I shouldn't have, he says. One time could have been enough. The second was a risk, and I knew that. It was stupid of me. He tells me how he got thrashed around and slammed to the side of a cliff, hitting the rock several times until he tumbled to the ground, that his helmet up and broke off, that he lost consciousness. You passed out? What if you have a concussion? I say. Though I have limited knowledge of what a concussion is and what a person is supposed to do about it. No, it's just a headache, he says. We drive for a while. As we drive, I begin to notice I'm simmering, growing more and more rageful. I can hardly stand to be with this in myself. Aiden, even in his strangely comatose state, can sense my anger. You could have died. This could have been so much worse. I didn't even want you to go and your dream told you not to go. You didn't have to go back up into the sky. Still, I feel like a monster, berating him when he's already down, already called himself stupid, already hurting, and for the fact that I am so consumed with anger that I can't find gentleness or care. A police officer pulls me over in Idaho for speeding, 70 miles per hour in a 50 mile per hour zone. I'm used to people driving over the speed limit in California where I grew up, so I wasn't expecting to be pulled over. Are you out of your dang mind? What were you doing? The cop asks. Just trying to get home, I said. The cop feels like an apparition to me. He gives me a ticket. Aiden says, I knew that was going to happen. I should have said something. Well, why didn't you? I snapped. Aiden's eyes track back and forth. I don't know, 
I thought it. It didn't occur to me to say it. My head hurts. What if I drive? You're injured. You good? Yeah, he says. And he drives competently. My channel is wisdomless, intelligenceless, just a loud, piercing static. I don't even think to call anyone or my mom for advice because at this time in my life, I don't like talking to her. Aiden will attest in the future that I didn't offer to take him to the hospital and that he was too embarrassed to ask and was trying to play it off like he was less injured than he was. I suppose we take turns driving home, but I don't remember the drive. The next thing I remember is getting close to Olympia and Aiden asking if he can sleep over the night because he doesn't think he can face his dogs yet and the way they'll jump all over him. Of course. Everything seems slightly fine. While he is in bed upstairs, I remember the kratom, which we'd enjoyed, and ask the angels if it will help him feel better and get some rest. I see hundreds of lights pop off, so I assume it's a yes. I ask Aiden if he wants some. He does. And according to him, it helped him sleep. In the morning, he seems okay. We have sex three times. He initiates it each time. Slow, sensual, dropped in. The crystal hanging over my window speckling us with rainbows. We are laying facing each other, still waking up, making up for a terrible day taking him in, and the accidental aphrodisiac of near death. And Aiden says he feels so lucky that we just kept going and going. I drop him off at his house and prepare for my flight. It seems like a traumatic event and a crisis averted. Aiden's still a man who can carry me on his shoulders and make love to me three times in a row, invincible, as I suspected. I anticipate moving in in June and still keeping to plans. The past life regression training, next up. Aiden's headache will fade. One of our last nights of the trip before the crash, Aiden had been sad one night about the trip coming to a close and that he was to return to his life where, he says, he's just a leaf in the wind. But you're starting a business, I said. We're moving in together. There's so much newness. You can have direction. No, he laughed. I'm a leaf in the wind. Chapter 18 The past life regression workshop occurs under a Pluto station, following the recent Mars station, and is a psychic stew. I find it deeply uncomfortable, but the content of the workshop, too, is uncomfortable. The process of retrieving soul fragments in relationship to traumas and samskaras from past lives. The regressions happen in a big room, with lots of people, and tons of screaming and dramatic noises, and it's hard to focus or actually drop in. My past lives are both men. One, a man wandering the beach. It turns out he's not even a full person, but a ghost. 
he is washed up on a shore, disoriented. Another, a drunk at a bar in Russia a few centuries ago. This one, I feel I am making up. My family, oh, they are so good. I am worthless, I don't provide for them, I moan. I let him talk and talk so the person I am paired with can feel like a regression is happening. I'm not a skeptic, and I fully believe in past lives, but I'm not sure this Russian man is me or just something I'm pulling from the ether or making up based on the Russian literature I've read. It's kind of fun. The trauma of the paragliding accident is a little out of sight. Aiden tells me after a few days of headaches he's doing better and sends me sweet texts, updates me about adventures with friends, his friend who attaches a canoe to a bike and the way they take turns riding in it at a local Olympia parade. At one point, Aiden tells me how he saw in his dreams zombies, presumably from the workshop, trying to eat me. Remember who you are. Remember your light, he warns me. I'm not mortally concerned, but I'm touched that he is protecting me. Aiden picks me up from the airport with my car I'd lent him. In my fantasy, he would have gotten out of the car and let me leap into his arms. He would have brought chocolate or some kind of gift. He would be elated to see me and so curious about my experiences. He's happy to see me. But the reality of our post-workshop reunion is that, only a few minutes into the drive home, he delivers news to me as though it's wonderful news. Aiden never wanted to break up with Kat. After having cheated on her, Kat decided to forgive him and work on the relationship. But within a matter of weeks, repair had still not happened, Kat was still resentful, and Aiden was trying everything he could think to. Aiden had fled to the woods with his guitar and his singing and his prayers, begging the universe to help him. A deep peace descended upon him, and when he returned home, Kat dumped him. They had been hanging out occasionally, even while Aiden and I were together, and Kat, at many layers, was still icing him out. But, he tells me, now in the car, that something shifted. His brain, his head, has changed. Something has changed to make him more detached. In the injury, he has retracted his energy inward so that when he saw Kat, she opened up because he was not reaching or grasping for her. She opened up to him again, and now there is a space to heal the relationship. He speaks of all this as though it's a heavenly revelation that his aloof, retracted state, inspired by a head injury, has earned Kat's affections. I am tired from the flight and decide to keep my anger and shock to myself, since lately, all I do is get mad at Aiden. How I respond, I honestly don't remember. Within days, one of Aiden's dogs becomes ill. He tells me, but does not allow me to help with anything, including driving to the vet. He enlists a friend instead. His dog needs surgery and it will take all the money that Aiden has. It's May, and I put in my 30 days notice so we can move in together in June. Aiden stops being responsive to my texts, getting back to me with days of silence between us. I spiral, 
grow insane, quietly and secretly, try to give him space. He sexes me over the phone sometimes, instead of seeing me in person. In a rare moment, we are face to face again. He tells me that he and Kat made love again, going through a box of condoms in a weekend. I'm happy for you. I lie. He has broken no agreement. We didn't have one. We have to stop being intimate if Kat's not okay with it, he says. I have to talk to her about it. Or we can do it behind her back. What? He tells me this furtively, shiftily, like it's a weather report that is only partially accurate and subject to change. In my sleep, during a couple days of silence between us, I dream of Aiden again. He is inanimate, lifeless, like a wax statue, standing. He is at the base of a spiral metal staircase within a yellow smoky cloud space. He is animate for a few moments until his lips begin to subtly form words. He speaks, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. The spiral staircase behind him disintegrates into dust. In The Waking Life, Aiden says he is rehabbing his brain. He says his cognition is slower. His dog is shaved and bandaged from surgery. I run into him at the food bank, where I probably just went to run into him and less out of need. The food bank gives away excess food that would be thrown in the trash anyway. Aiden is wearing just overalls, a look I have never seen on him before. His hair up in a bun. He looks good. He tells me he's been doing yoga and healing his sweet brain. He speaks to me in a Russian accent in line, but it's not really fun anymore. You like sex? He asks, bluntly. I go to a friend, the one who had had us over for the Christmas party where Aiden and I first met, crying uncontrollably in her kitchen. We're supposed to move in together and I don't know what to do, if I need to keep my home that I love, or if I need to stick this out with Aiden. I don't even know if it's him or his injury. She tells me that she saw him with Kat at a roller skating rink. And that when my friend and Aiden made eyes, Aiden had a shocked look on his face like he'd been caught doing something wrong. I remember seeing Aiden for a quick moment in a dream after we had first met and the way he disappeared and hid. My friend's husband walks in while I'm crying in the kitchen. We love you, they tell me. We're here for you. My friend advises me to become radically clear about what I want instead of anticipating what Aiden wants or how Aiden might respond to what I want, which is a form of manipulation, she tells me, of getting into his business. Tell him, she says, what you want, and let him make a choice. I feel, though, that I have no bargaining chips, that I am already at a loss. To tell him my desire is to lose him. I type out a text to Aiden that feels like relationship suicide, about how painful things are for me right now, how I don't know if he really wants me to move in and I want to be wanted, 
that nothing has changed for me about my love and desire and devotion, and I want us to resume the way things were. Thanks for telling me, he replies a few hours later. I didn't know. We need to talk, he says, the next time I see him. You can still move in, as a friend. Aiden has sex with his friends, so I don't know what this means. It'll be good for Kat's jealousy anyway, I think, for you to be around. Are you getting back together with her or planning on it? No, he says. I don't want a relationship with anyone, her or you. I want to be independent. But look, our love will always stay with you and me. We'll always be connected. This is everlasting. But I want it in the material as a reality here, Aiden. I love you. He softens, but there is still a repellent distance between us, like a high vibration person who vigilantly deflects all sadness, a toothy smile to which energy bounces off and back to the beholder. And I feel for you. I really do, he says warmly. I'll always be with you. Aiden has split off from our shared world as though he's forgotten it, like amnesia. Is it his brain? Day by day, I live inside of a piercing, jagged metal pushing into my skin hell realm, unable to find relief or distraction, panicked. I try to find a part of me that can rally and fight for us, move in with him under these conditions, wait for his return, wait for his brain to heal, win him over, hold an anchor of faith that he will return to us. I'd done this successfully with my last partner. We shared real love and he turned away from it. And I held the candle of it for eight, nine months straight and pursued him and waited and he returned to me, eventually committed in a way where he would not leave me and I had to be the one to end it. Around a year later, when being with him became unbearable, and I saw what he was resisting by turning away from me. I know I am capable of this long game, but is it who I wish to be? I see myself in my own room, that had always been the plan, our own room so we could spend the night by choice and have our own psychic space. I see myself in my own room in the same house as Aiden, and it feels like a small compressed cave. A place for me to choke back tears. A place for me to be a liar. A place for me to play strange games of bringing other men home just to try to make Aiden jealous. Afraid, staticky, frizzy, wired, den. I see the immensity of our love and how freely given it was when Aiden chose me. I don't feel I have the strength to fight, to move in, to wait to play some special operations game, to be a spy again. I retract my 30 days notice, stay put in a home I love, tell Aiden my choice. I make love to myself one night in an attempt to repair the sudden hormonal shift in my body, the withdrawal symptoms. Sex with Aiden fades in and out. We usually can't help it when we see each other. Seeing each other becomes more rare, more difficult to hear or see from him. He 
calls me one day to ask if I can pick him up from work. Of course, I rush over. I got fired, he tells me in the car. Why? A client told my boss that I touched her vagina. What? I didn't, he says. She had a knot that was bothering her that involved a muscle high up her thigh. The muscles connected. I didn't touch her vagina, she just felt like I did. And she asked me to stop, and so I said thank you, and did. I meant thank you for telling me, but who knows how she interpreted it. I should have had a better boundary for myself, not gone so high up her thigh. But her body seemed to want it, and we were working on the problem. It was helping her problem. I was so focused on that. I wasn't thinking about her mental trauma or what she might think. I'm fucking tired of people. The way their body says one thing that's different from what their mind and ego is saying. Why would I touch her vagina? I'm so sorry, Aiden. This could be a push to start your own practice, which I know you wanted, and get paid more than you do here. You're an amazing body worker, and you could keep your full rates for yourself instead of getting paid hourly. He shrugs. We walk his dogs in the woods, and Aiden becomes more animated, alive, framed by the fur needles and the glinting setting sunlight. He says, For years, I've had clients who sexualize me, who want to fuck me, and now? What if I just gave up the pretense and became a sex worker? Give the people what they want. My body feels like lead. Aiden, I say. Aiden would be an amazing sex worker if that's what he wanted. I wouldn't like it. I don't think he'd do it. But he doesn't want it, so this is beside the point. He's just being flippant and reactive right now. I'd already foreseen something like this happening and felt powerless to prevent it. Hoped it wouldn't happen. I don't know who I'm talking to anymore. Aiden? Or brain injury Aiden? Who has forsaken me?